This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll Reb Meir of Premishlan was one of the great Rebbe's and great Sadikim, and he was well known throughout Europe and the Jewish world. And so not only did simple Jews come to Reb Meir, but even Sadikim themselves would come to the Holy Rebbe to ask for advice. And one time, a certain Sadik came to Reb Meir and asked for a blessing, a bracha, to move to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And at first Reb Meir said to him, but if you leave, who's going to do your holy work here in Ukraine? And the Tzaddik said that he spent most of his time sitting and learning, and that even though he was involved in community matters, there was a respectable rabbi who would take over for him, and he wanted to spend his final days in the Holy Land learning Torah. So Reb Meir asked him, and how do you plan on raising the money to make the trip and to support your family when you get there? And the Tzaddik said he was planning on spending the next few months going around collecting money from family members, community members, anybody who knew him, he said, for sure, when I tell them that I'm planning on moving to the Holy Land, I'm sure people will give generously. But Meir says out loud, you know, hmm, you're a tzaddik, you're a talmid chacham, you're a Torah scholar, and you shouldn't be spending your time walking around collecting money, because if you do that, you're not going to have time to learn Torah. What's going to be with your Torah learning during those few months when you're collecting money? I would advise you not to go, because it would be a waste of your time, but I can see how determined you are. And so in that case... Why don't you let me make a suggestion? Stay here for a little bit of time with me, and I will raise the money for your traveling expenses. So the visitor thought for a minute, and he said, Sure, I'll be happy to stay here, especially if you're going to raise the money for me. And the tzaddik was about to leave the room, but the mayor raised up his hand, and he signaled to him to stay. And then he told his attendant, his gabai, Call in the next person. The door opens, and clearly a wealthy-looking Jew is standing there. And he was about to enter when he sees that the tzaddik, who came to get a blessing to go to the land of Israel, is also standing there. And so he stands at the threshold of the door. He's not sure, should he go in? Should he stay out? Was Reb Meir finished? Even though the attendant had told him to go in, still, Reb Meir, there was somebody else. He didn't know what to do. Was this a mistake? And so he stood there at the door, not knowing should he go out or come in. And Reb Meir didn't make any sign. And finally, after what seemed like 15, 20 minutes, Reb Meir said, Come on in. The wealthy Jew steps across the threshold of the door. And Remeir says to the wealthy Jew, Come sit down, please. I have a story to tell you. And then Remeir turns to the visiting Sadiq and he said, I'd like you to stay here too. So then Remeir turns again to the wealthy Jew and he says, You both need to hear this story. It has a worthwhile moral that will do you both good. Many years ago, there was a wealthy, prosperous Jew who owned a great deal of property. And his name was Moshe. But Moshe, even though he had so much money, he had something else. He was a miser. He wouldn't share his money with anyone. He never let anybody into his house. And if a poor person came knocking on the door, asking for something to eat, even if he was starving and begging just for something to eat or drink, Moshe, the wealthy Jew, would send that poor person to his neighbor, Matasiahu who, although he wasn't wealthy, was a God-fearing Jew. 
and would take in all the poor people that Moshe would turn away. And Moshe didn't feel bad about this at all, because he justified it to himself. He said, what kind of host am I? I don't know how to host people. I'm not a nice person, but my neighbor, Matasyao, he's nice, and he'll take in that poor person and feed him really well. And even though Matasyao didn't have any money, unlike Moshe, he and his family were always able to put food on the table and somehow always feed the guests that would come to their house. And they had such an open heart, they were willing to bring in anybody, no matter how dirty or poor they looked. And somehow, Reb Matasyao's house and his heart was big enough for everybody who could squeeze in. And all of the Jews in town, and even the non-Jews, had a great deal of respect for Matasyao, because he was such a kind, good person, and he helped so many poor people. But you know how it is, when there's a person with a lot of money, even if they're not a nice person, even if they don't show other people respect, it's human nature to want to kiss up to somebody with a lot of money and show them respect that they don't really deserve. And so even though Moshe was such a miser and treated everybody so poorly, he got the respect that his money brought. And up in heaven, they looked down at this injustice. And they said, look at the respect that Moshe is getting when he's such a miser. And here's Matasyao, taking in poor people day and night, barely able to feed his own family. And he's feeding Moshe's guests. It's not fair. So the angels came before the heavenly court, and they demanded that Moshe be stripped of all of his money, and that those riches be given to his neighbor, Matasyao, who had never denied anyone a place to sleep and food to eat. And it was decreed in heaven that the money would be moved from one person to the next, but just before the sentence was carried out, Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet, came before the court and he said, it's not fair. We're just judging a person on hearsay. We need to know if it's true that Moshe is truly a miser and won't give to anyone. So the heavenly court says to Eliyahu Navi, and what are you going to do about it? He said, let me go down there and test him myself and we'll see if he's really a miser. So Eliyahu Navi comes down into this world, disguised as a very poor person. And he goes and knocks on Moshe's door. And Moshe wasn't home, so a servant answers the door. And he sees this poor, dirty, ragged, shivering Jew. It's freezing from the cold. And the servant says, get out of here. You're not allowed to be here. We don't take your kind around here. If the master of this house comes back and sees you, he'll kill you with his own two hands. He's not a nice person. He's really a cruel person. Trust me, for your sake and my sake, get out of here fast. If he finds you here, he'll throw us both out. The servant tried to slam the door, but Eliyahu had put his foot in the doorway, and the servant couldn't close it. And Eliyahu and Avi, pretending to be this poor Jew, he says, I promise you, I won't eat or drink anything. I'm just freezing, and I need to warm up from this freezing cold outside. Let me come inside and sit by the fireplace for a few minutes. It's all I'm asking of you. But the servant said, no way, you can't come in. And he's trying to close the door on Eliyahu and Avi's foot when... Moshe himself came back to the house. He says, what's going on here? And he turns to Eliyahu Navi and says, what do you want? The servant was so scared that he'd been caught speaking with a poor person at Moshe's door that he couldn't even get a word out of his mouth. But the poor person, Eliyahu Navi, he wasn't scared of Moshe. And he said, I asked your servant if I can come in and warm up. That's all I wanted. And maybe a little glass of schnapps to warm my freezing bones. Look at this beautiful house you have. For sure you can let me come in and warm up a little bit. And Moshe says to Eliyahu Navi, you must be out of your mind. Do you know where you are? This is my house, and you don't come in my house. This isn't a charity, or a hotel, or a hostel. You don't just come in here to warm up. 
And then he turns to the servant and he says, throw this person out of here. I don't want to see him ever again. And even though the servant wanted to be nice to Eliyahu Navi, he was forced to take him by his shirt and throw him out the door. And then he slammed the door closed and locked it behind him. And Eliyahu Navi stood outside in the freezing cold, crying and begging to Hashem, please let Moshe have second thoughts about what just happened. Maybe, just maybe, he'll open the door and let me in. The gates of Tshuva are always open. Maybe he'll understand and figure out what he did wrong and want to do Tshuva for it. But Eliyahu Navi just stood in the freezing cold. Moshe did not open the door and did not even look to see what was going on outside. And Eliyahu Navi, he wept for Moshe's soul. When he realized that Moshe wasn't going to open the door, he was called back up to the heavenly court. And they said, no, Eliyahu, we gave you your chance. Is Moshe truly a miser or not? And Eliyahu, he said, oh, I'm so sorry to say, I don't have anything good to say about Moshe. And so the case rested and Moshe would have to lose his fortune as the court ruled. And after pausing for a minute or so, Reb Meir continues the story. And now he raised his voice for emphasis. He said, when I, Meir, heard of this sentence against the rich man Moshe. I rushed forward to defend this Moshe. I told the heavenly court, how can you give out such a punishment like that? To make a rich man lose all of his money without warning him. That's not fair. And Reb Meir told the heavenly court, I want the opportunity to warn Moshe. It's not fair to trap him like a little fly trapped in a spider's web. How can you do that to him? You need to at least give him a little warning. Something to shake him up. And give him a second chance. And so we learn from Pesach Sheni, the second Passover, that every Jew deserves a second chance. And so the heavenly court allowed Reb Meir to warn Moshe, the wealthy Jew, one more time before he loses his fortune. And now Reb Meir turns to the wealthy Jew who's standing there. And he says, if Moshe agrees to give 400 rubles to this tzaddik standing right next to me, to pay for his travel expenses to go to Eretz Yisrael. And if Moshe promises to do tshuva and mend his ways, then Hashem will grant him a second chance. But if, chas v'shalom, God forbid, Moshe ignores this warning and insists on being a miser, even now, and treating people with such disrespect, even though he's been warned, then Moshe will lose his fortune and have to go around collecting money just to feed himself and his family for the rest of his life. Then Reb Meir was quiet, and he turns to the rich man who was sitting on the chair, and he says, Moshe is here right now. Let's ask him what he says. The rich man sitting on the chair couldn't speak. He started crying, and then he fainted and fell on the floor. The Rebbe said just to wait for him to wake up. And when finally he came back to consciousness, he turned to the Rebbe and he said, You're so right, Reb Meir. You're so right, Rebbe. That's exactly how I behaved. And that's exactly what happened. I'm a sinner, Rebbe. I'm evil. I've hurt so many people. And I behaved like I was doing them a favor. I thought they'd be better off by my neighbor. But I'm the one who turned them away. And I'm the one that hurt them so much. And I'm the one that didn't help them. Please, Rebbe, have mercy on me. I promise I'm going to do tshuva. I promise I'll never behave that way again. And then the wealthy Jew reached into his pocket and he pulled out a stack of bills and he counts out 400 rubles for the tzaddik and he gives more to Reb Meir 
And he adds another 400 rubles for the tzaddik. And he says, please, when you reach the holy city of Jerusalem, daven for me and my family. And with all of this money, the tzaddik was able to go to Eretz Yisrael without having to waste any time, not learning Torah, to collect the money. And now Reb Meir gave him his blessing. And he said, okay, make sure the whole trip you're learning Torah. And when you get to the holy city of Jerusalem, daven for me as well. As for Moshe, Moshe went back home and put a sign on his front door. It said, Welcoming guests. He told the servant, Everyone who comes to the door and asks for money, no matter what, gets one gold coin. Anyone who needs to be fed, you feed them on the spot. And he built a guest house so the people could sleep over at night. And in the middle of the guest house was a fireplace that all winter was open to anyone who needed to warm up. And he also went over to his neighbor, Matasyao, and he told him the story of what happened with Reb Meir and that Matasyao was supposed to get Moshe's money. And so Moshe gave him half of his fortune. He said, we'll share in the mitzvah together. And of course, Matasyao was so happy because not being able to put bread on his table was hard enough. Feeding other people, he didn't even know how he did it. And now he was able to live like a mensch. And he too expanded his house in order to host more people. And the two neighbors became a beacon of light. People would come from all over, spend Shabbos and Yom Tov with Moshe and his neighbor, Matesiao. to share with you that I have a new episode of Jewish People and Ideas, my other podcast, where I had a conversation with Rabbi David Aaron of Israelite and Oraita in the old city of Jerusalem. Here's a little excerpt of our conversation. Rabbi David Aaron, a visionary educator and author is the founder of Israelite and the Rosh Hashiva of Oraita in the old city of Jerusalem, Israel. He is the author of multiple best-selling books, including Endless Light, The Secret Life of God, Living a Joyous Life, and The God-Powered Life, published by major publishers such as Random House and Putnam. His teachings have reached millions of people around the world through his appearances on Larry King Live and E! Entertainment. Even though Rabbi Aaron and I both live in Jerusalem, we conducted the conversation through Zoom because of the rabbi's busy schedule. We covered a wide range of topics, including who is God? Why would God care if I married a non-Jew? What is a meaningful life? The role of the Holocaust in Jewish identity? Jewish atheists in atheism? Why Israel should matter to Jews abroad? And much more. So people want to live a meaningful life. But do do. people know what a meaningful life is? Like, what is living a meaningful life? Wow, great, 
Great question. A, a meaningful life is the same as a meaningful word. What makes a word meaningful? If I were a word, I wouldn't really want to be hanging out in a dictionary. That's a place where I have potential meaning, but I want to be in a sentence. I, I don't want to feel that the guy in front of me and the guy after me just happens to share the same two letters. I want to be part of a story. I want to be contributing to a story. So a meaningful word is a word that's in a sentence, which is in a paragraph, which is in a chapter, which is in a book, which is in a series. And so too, a meaningful life is that I am part of a greater story. And that's called his story or history, because history is his story. And your story and my story is an episode in the meta story of his story. And that's when our life becomes meaningful. But when we don't feel we're part of anything, we're not coming from nowhere, we're not going anywhere, we're not contributing, we're not part of that which is greater than ourselves. That's the interesting thing about us. You know, when I was a teenager, I loved going to rock and roll concerts. And uh, I remember my first rock and roll concert, thousands of people at this concert, and suddenly in the middle of the concert, everyone was holding a match. Now, today people hold their cell phones, but this is a desecration of rock and roll. What can I do? But uh, in my days, people actually did that physical, ah, you know, little well, You match. also had a time limit on it with the match. That's right. There's a lot of time limit. And so I, you know, I, I didn't have a match and I, I desperately needed a match. I have to be part of this. So I'm, excuse me, you got a match, you got a match. And I got, finally had a match and there I was holding my match. And I felt great until it got to my fingers. But I was holding that match. And uh, only later on did I realize the meaning of that ritual. It was a ritual. And I understood it when I was, when I was invited to a Shabbat experience of 300 teenagers. And just before Shabbat, everyone was dancing and singing, and then they all lit their matches to light the Shabbat candles. And I remember thinking, this is so familiar, but I've never done this before. And then I realized I had done this before, that this was, um, this was what I was looking for. I was looking to feel part of a reality greater than myself. I was really looking for Shabbat, but at a Black Sabbath concert. You know, so we are all yearning. We all long to belong to that which is beyond. And that is what gives us meaning. When I feel part of a greater story, you know, when I'm just, it's all about me, 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 I call that misery. Not misery, but misery. And uh, we want to get beyond ourself and feel part of some greater self that we share with the universe. And that greater self is what we would call God. You just made me realize that that's probably the reason that I love living here in Israel. Yes. Because you are part of a, you are an individual part of a bigger picture and we're all in it together. And it gives you the sense of meaning by living here. It's amazing. I mean, not that it's not possible to feel anywhere else, but I, I did grow up in Toronto and, you know, I get on the bus and I go downtown. I, I didn't feel that this is part of some great story, but when I walk down the street of Jerusalem, I realize, my gosh, we've come back after thousands of years against all odds. Those prophets were saying things that were beyond ridiculous. And yet, looking back at it, how could they have known that we would actually come back and be here and, and rebuild this country? It's like, we're part of an amazing story. And that's what gives you a deep sense of meaning. That was Rabbi David Aaron of Israelite and Araita. If you'd like to hear the rest of the conversation, just search for my name, Barack Holman, wherever you listen to podcasts, 
or go to my website, jewishpeopleideas.com. Thank you for listening, my sweetest friends. Have a wonderful Shabbos.